Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. Lord, I thank you for this morning again for everything that we've been able to enjoy already, to be able to celebrate, to be able to call on you and to look to you and to think about your amazing grace and love for us and to think about some of the things that are going on and, and, uh, and the opportunities that we have in these days to, to participate in all kinds of uh, exciting uh, events and, um, and just to uh, serve you with our lives. And Lord, we pray that uh, now as we turn to um, think about what your word says in, in Genesis chapter 3 uh, to us, Lord, we just pray that you would enlighten our understanding uh, quicken our minds, Lord, that we might uh, see what you have for, for us there. Uh, soften our hearts, Lord. Soften our hearts to, um, uh, to what you want to give us this morning. And um, bless the, the children and give them the same types of opportunities we pray today to learn and to grow. Um, Lord, we, we need you, and we need you for this. We desperately need you for this this morning. So bless your people. And speak to our hearts through your word, we pray uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1-1 points us to uh, the one true creator God, and then the rest of the Bible reveals him to us. Uh, Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. And we do have these uh, uh, scriptures that we're going to put uh, some of them on the screen for you, not all of them, because we do want you to be uh, thinking about your own copy of, of the word that you're in and reading and studying. But there's uh, Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And as the rest of the Bible expands on Genesis 1-1, we come, come to understand that God has always existed, that he, that he is eternal, while he himself made everything else that exists. And so there is one God, one creator of all, who is over all and owns it all. And that's what it means to be God. He is before all things. He is above all things. He is infinite, and he is infinitely great. He is all-knowing, all-powerful, creator and sovereign Lord of the universe. And on those grounds, he alone is worthy to be worshipped. But he is also, praise God, that he is also good. He is holy. His holiness, by the way, is part of his goodness. But we will be talking more about that in the future, especially as we move through, uh, through Scripture. Uh, so the reasons that we worship God tend to fall into two broad categories in Scripture. Uh, we worship God for many, many, many reasons. But categorically, we worship God because he is great, and we worship God because he is good. Uh, we worship him as the God of creation, and we worship him as the God of salvation. And this is uh, uh, 
these, these two great categories of worship, if you will, uh, are set out again and again and again and again throughout Scripture. I'll get, you know, I'll put, we'll put one example on the screen that we looked at a couple weeks ago, which is Psalm 136. Verse 1 says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. But then verses 5 through 9, the psalmist says, To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule the day, for his steadfast love endures forever. And the moon and stars to rule the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. And you see the volley back and forth between the fact that God is great and the fact that he is good. The fact that he made us but then that he loves us so much that he would rescue us when we turned away from him and sinned against him. So he is, uh, we praise God for creation and we praise him for salvation, which is redemption, regeneration, restoration. And that's not just an Old Testament paradigm. It carries all the way through scripture into the New Testament. And as we saw back in August, the book of Revelation. Revelation 4.11, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. That's Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. But take a look at Revelation 5, 12, and 13. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then uh, it says, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and forever. And of course, the reference to the lamb there, who is also the lion, uh, uh, in reference to that, we looked last uh, two weeks ago at this passage, which is Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Sounds like, he, you know, very clear reference to the whole uh, creative act of God. And yet clearly in Colossians chapter 1, ascribed personally and directly to Jesus, the Lamb, who is the Lion, who is Savior and Lord, Creator and Redeemer. So um, creation is good. Because God is good. Life is good because God is good. Life is good because life comes from God, the creator and sustainer of all, who is good. And if you don't think life is good, then consider the words of Jesus. Because it was Jesus who said, he who has a son has life. He said, uh, the thief comes to kill and to uh, steal and to destroy, but I have come that you might have life. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. See, life is good. God created life. And God is good, and life is good. And you say, yeah, but we're, it's all messed up now. Yeah, it is. We're going to get to that. But right now, we're reviewing chapter 1 of Genesis and 2 of Genesis, where God said over and over again, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then last week, uh, it is very good in reference to God's completed creation with the culmination of the creation of the first man and woman, our very first parents. So uh, last week we had a special service and there were all kinds of highlights from that. One of my highlights was coming in the door and being greeted by five people all under three feet tall. <laughs> and I mean heartily greeted too. Like they were shaking hands and 
welcoming everybody. <laughs> it was, I was like, wow, that is great. I wonder how, how often that happens. I, I don't know, but, but I think it was a wonderful thing. And I tell you just really quickly, one of my other highlights of the morning, and there were, there were tons of highlights uh, if you were here uh, to witness them, but one of the highlights for me is a simple little thing, and I don't even know if it stood out to you, but it stood out to me. Here we are, we're all here, and the, all the adults are here, and all the kids are here, and everything, and Alex and Brittany are up here, and they're, they're trying to you know, lead us through different things and whatnot, and at one point, he made every one of us wait while he got down on the floor and helped one of the kids, and I don't even know which one, one of the kids it was, but he helped one of the little ones find their Bible passage. I just thought, yeah. It's not about us. It's not about me. You know? I, anyways, I, 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 but I didn't get to preach last week on one of those huge foundational doctrines. Uh, you know, two weeks ago it was, wow, God is great, God is good. Last week we were looking at the Imago Dei, the image of God, the fact that every single human being Every single human being, regardless of their race, their culture, their age, their gender, their background, their behavior even, is created in the image of God and infinitely loved by Him. The dignity that that bestows on human beings is profound. And it's a, it's a doctrine that you and I share and we have as Bible-believing Christians that the world doesn't have, and there are ramifications for that too, as we see, watch the news today and watch it, how things play out. But anyways, that's, uh, uh, you know, uh, just, I don't want to, I don't want to, because we got a lot to talk about today, but, you know, I, I do want to uh, mention this, that in his book, God, Freedom, and Human Dignity, Ron uh, Highfield uh, writes how the prevailing view today is this, that the more self-sufficient and self-defining we are, the more dignity we have. That's what people believe. That's what the world believes. But the Bible says that dignity is bestowed on us by God by virtue of the fact that we were made in His image and infinitely loved by Him. Every single uh, last one of us. And how what that does for how we see people and how we treat people and how we see ourselves and how we treat ourselves is nothing short of being absolutely and totally profound. This is uh, right from my notes from uh, three, I think maybe three years ago when we were in the book of Acts and I had this in my notes and I pulled it out for today. The gospel is intrinsically equalizing in its doctrine because it's based on the Bible bedrock that all of us are created in the image of God and thus are all equally desirable to God. The call for unity in the church and the call for outreach across all dividing lines, ethnic, geographic, etc., are both the direct result and indication of the ultimate equality and therefore value or worth of man. That is every man. And I'm using the word man there uh, to refer to men and women and people of all ages, which is something we're losing in our culture because we don't understand that the word man means that when it's used in these pages of Scripture here. But anyways, that's, that's another story for another day. Um, I want to move on and, and today and talk a little bit about uh, chapter 3 which, as I say, is all about uh, sin. It's about the fall. In fact, my Bible has a little, little topical uh, 
reference at the beginning. It says, the fall. Does your Bible have that? Now, the word fall doesn't isn't here. I don't think it is. I never read it. Uh, I mean, I never read the word here. But, um, but that's what we call this and uh, for theological reasons. But, and that's what it was. Because God made us good. He dignified his creation. Uh, you know, and the thing that stands out, and you know, I mean, all of creation is good, as made by God, and it's all amazing. But only of man, that would be mankind, is it said, very good. In the image of God. Let's read 19 verses, and then we'll let you read the rest on your own. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a uh, delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, that's God. God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to me to be with me, so I'm sorry. She, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. You, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring uh, forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return as I mentioned 
I will leave the last part of that to your reading, uh, and also chapter four, because the the uh, the um, curriculum uh, sets out uh, a study of of Genesis three and four, and we're not going to be talking a lot about chapter four. I'll make reference to it as it relates to the implications of what we call the fall, but we're going to really be thinking mostly about chapter three. But you have all kinds of opportunity to study chapter uh, three and four, and I would. Uh, recommend the Gospel Project curriculum, which gives the five-day reading uh, surrounding these uh, truths, and that's very helpful. And you can get that uh, if you're part of a group, or even if you're not part of a group, uh, you can talk to uh, Alex White, and he will sign you up for an email uh, and get that to you. Um, so the world looks at this as a fable. But to us, who believe it and know it to be true, it's history. And it is foundational to our faith and to our worldview. Scripture does not treat this as anything but fact. So, some readers have counted as many as 200 references to the book of Genesis in the New Testament. The book of Genesis is quoted from, directly, by every single New Testament author. And we have Jesus on record in the Gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, quoting from Genesis at least 25 times. And over half of the references to Genesis in the New Testament refer to content from the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And of those, 63 of those references refer to the first three chapters of Genesis. The world considers this to be a fable. To those of us who believe it to be true and know it to be true, it's history. It's biblical fact. So the doctrine of what we call the fall is one of the most important foundational doctrines in the whole Bible. And it answers a question, the ramifications of which everyone agrees on, but which the world has no answer for, which is what has gone horribly wrong with our world. I remember Billy Graham years ago saying this. He said, every cemetery on this planet is a testimony to the truth of God's word. The doctrine of the fall, of course, begins with God's good creation, followed by the prohibition, God, God prohibiting Adam and Eve from eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then it, in our passage today, Genesis 3, uh, the narrative proceeds with um, the uh, temptation and the subsequent act of disobedience resulting in what we call the fall or the fallout. And the rest, of course, uh, uh, as they say, is history. The consequences. The broad consequences, some of which are laid out right in Genesis 3. The most uh, encapsulated version, of course, is in the statements made by God, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. 
But the rest of the Bible unpacks that. What, is, you know, what does that look like? What did, God, what did God mean when he said, in the day you eat thereof, you will surely die? What's it mean to live? What does it mean to die? What is this thing we call sin? And, and how does it affect our lives? And, and what are some of these consequences? And we want to think about some of those things today. But first, I want to think a little bit about the temptation. Because we're told that right at the start of Genesis 3 that the serpent was there. And we learn as we read on in Scripture. We're not, we're, not, we're not told who the serpent is at all in Genesis 3. But if you read on and study the Bible, it becomes very obvious. It's the enemy of God, the evil, the evil one, the one that God created as, a, as an angel of light who became proud and fell uh, from, uh, from his status and state as a, a servant of the Lord to become the chief enemy of God, the one who hates God and hates all of those who are loved by God. And he comes to the, 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 to the woman and the man in the garden and he tempts them. And we want to spend, I want to spend a little bit of time looking at that before we talk about sin. I want to talk about temptation a bit because it's foundational as well. As we read on throughout Scripture and study Scripture, uh, we see temptation occurring over and over and over again. And we see men and women created in the image of God succumbing to temptation, eating the fruit, as it were, and sinning against God and against man over and over and over and over again. The temptation uh, in Genesis 3 also parallels, by way of contrast, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. You can read about it in Matthew 4. Remember when, the, when uh, the devil came to Jesus? He tempted him, and there were three aspects to that temptation, just as there are three aspects to the temptation here in Genesis chapter 3. It's also parallel to what John says in 1 John 2.16. Take a look. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Take note, Genesis 3, verse 6, the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that it was a tree to be desired to make one wise. And those are the three aspects of temptation that are set out here. So this passage, Genesis 3, is foundational in providing us uh, profound, profound insight into the nature of temptation. And we talked a little bit about this two weeks ago for those of you who were here. If you weren't here, I would encourage you to go back and maybe listen to that online, not because I'm so smart, but because these things are foundational. And, uh, you know, in, in geography, there's no such thing as you can't get there from here, but in logic and wisdom, your starting point is absolutely critical. And this is Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is our starting point. And uh, so um, temptation, is, as, as we've tried to, to see, uh, to show, um, uh, begins with uh, when we're talking about God being good, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, because understanding the goodness of God is understanding the key to temptation. Because first the serpent comes, as you look there in, in your passage, Genesis 3, he comes and he tries to twist what God has said. And then he comes right out and he denies the truthfulness of what God has said. He says, you, you will not surely die. And then he proceeds from that point to, to cast aspersions on the character and motives of God with regard to the boundaries that God had put in place. He's implying to the woman that God was holding out on her, on them, and in so doing is questioning the goodness and the character of God. And that's why, as I made reference two weeks ago to 
Oswald Chambers, in his statement about the root of all sin, uh, uh, didn't put it up on the screen for you then, but we do have it today. This is Oswald Chambers. The root of all sin is the suspicion that God is not good. And it worked. It worked. It was a very effective strategy uh, because it worked. Verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and, to, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate and she gave also some to her husband who was there with her and he ate. So you see what's happening here. The root of all sin is the suspicion that God is not good. Now think of Think of this in regard to any prohibition coming from God. Anytime God says, thou shalt not. Because this is the basis of morality. Why should we do something? Why should we not do something? Right and wrong, good and evil. Why do these things exist? And how does it all work? In Scripture, the greatness and goodness of God is the basis of morality. And uh, it's how uh, we understand that this, listen to me, that he knows what's good for us and that he wants what's good for us. That he is great and that he is good. But let me ask you a question. Isn't this scene that plays out here in Genesis 3 a lot like what happens when you take a toddler to the mall? They want to touch everything. They want to have everything. They want to eat everything. They want to play with everything. And what's your response as a parent? Oh, go at it. I'll be back here in an hour. Have fun. <laughs> Woohoo! They're gone. Like, I mean, you know. <laughs> what, do you, what do you, as a parent, what do you see? You don't have to even be a parent. All you got to do is go to the mall and watch other parents and other toddlers. What, you know, what do you, you see as a, as a parent or as an adult? What do you see? You see danger. You see havoc. <laughs> Peril. But what do they see? Well, I'll give it to you in a word. Freedom! If I can just get out of my parents' sight, I can do all those things that I want to do and have all those things I want to have. This is, this is it right here. This is what we're talking about. This is the way this all works. And so uh, this is how uh, people tend to see God and, and make effort to escape God so that they can be happy and fulfilled. And that's how we tend to see God, how we're tempted to see God when we listen to the tempter. Laws are boundaries. Boundaries that exist because God is good. Do you believe that? Do we trust God? We're going to be thinking more about this as we go through the Old Testament up into the book, Genesis, up in the book of Exodus, the giving of the law and what the law is for and what it means and what it says to us. 
But, but just take another look at this temptation. Look at uh, verses, uh, verse 6 there. And she saw that the tree was good for food. What's the implication? God doesn't want us to enjoy what is good. And a delight to the eyes. What's the implication? Well, God doesn't want us to enjoy things that are beautiful. And desire to make one wise. What's the implication? God doesn't want us to really know things. He just wants us to be like robots. He just wants to lay down the law and we just turn our brains off and just practice mindless obedience like robots. He just wants us to follow along blindly, naively, obeying his arbitrary rules. That's the temptation, to think that way. And we think that way every time we break one of God's laws. We eat the fruit. By the way, the whole discussion about who is to blame, Adam or Eve, we'd like to have that discussion, right? Is answered by one statement in this passage. You, I think you caught it when I read it. It says, she took of the fruit and she ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. You know, like he's not off somewhere, you know. La, 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 la. Oh, what a pretty serpent. They're, right, they're together. This is a, cor a corporate act. They're right there together. He was with her the whole time. And later on, and again, this is just a, you know, I don't have time for this because time is hastening on, but it's in my notes, so I'm going to say it anyway. Um, later on in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, the Apostle Paul uh, expresses there that one of the distinctives of the gender, of the experience of, of gender happens when it comes to sin. Paul makes the point in 1 Timothy 2.14, you can look it up, he says, he makes the point that Eve was deceived and Adam was not deceived. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us this, that he went in with his eyes wide open. So who is more culpable? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, he just digging, digging deeper and deeper and deeper all the time, just keep digging deeper, when you're in a hole, what do you do, just keep digging deeper, right, we're all sinners, and the root of all sin is the same for all of us, because it all comes back to rebellion against God based on our failure to trust him, but we do sin differently, and men and women sin differently because we are made different and we're made to be different despite what the world may tell you. We're equal, but we're not the same. That's what we call complementarianism. So those are some thoughts about temptation, but I want to I wanna really in, uh, take a look more at this, this subject of, of sin. So there's the temptation, but then there's this, this act of rebellion and disobedience, and what the Bible commonly refers to as sin. Uh, and I want for us to look a little bit about that. Genesis 2.16, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Because God is good. 
But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Because God is good. For in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Now just, uh, you don't need to turn there. Uh, you can if you want. But Romans 5.12, I'm going to get Dave to put that on the screen. If you would, Dave. Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. This is big here. Genesis 3, this isn't just about Adam and Eve. This is your history and mine. A couple of things about this Genesis 3 here and this act of, of, of sin and rebellion. Uh, number one, our first ancestors immediately died when they disobeyed God. Physically, they lived on in their bodies for hundreds of years, but spiritually, they died that day. In the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. In fact, they died that very moment because in that very moment, they were relationally estranged from God. They were cut off from God in rebellion against God, which put them in a position of alienation from God and under the condemnation of God. They forfeited the life we associate with the presence and the blessing of God who is the source of all life. That's not good. Genesis 1 and 2 that's good. Genesis 3, this is not good. Because we're not talking about what God does now. We're talking about what we did, what we do. And it's not good. Two, the act was vicarious. That means that when Adam and Eve, our first ancestors, sinned, we became sinners. You see, we're not only made equal in creation, we are also equal in the fall and sin. That's why the gospel applies to all of us. The fallout from the fall couldn't be worse. Not only did it place us all under condemnation and separate us from the God of love, but it change the fundamental nature and identity of who we are. We became sinners. Our very natures changed. So what does it mean to be a sinner? In, in practical terms, how does, how does sin work? What does sin do to us? And it's important to understand all of this and to talk about sin and to preach about sin because we need to understand this in terms of our experience as human beings. It is really important. What are we talking about practically when we say, as Bible-believing Christians, that we believe in uh, this doctrine of the fall or the doctrine of sin, that this revelation from God about the fall and about uh, sin and about us being sinners, what does it, what does it mean practically? for us. Well, the passage is really interesting as it goes on to talk about some of the fallout and, uh, and some of those things that are, are immediate, you know, before God even quote-unquote shows up on the scene, we see some of these, some of the fallout. One of the very first, the very first thing we see is what? What's the very first thing that happens that we're told? Pardon? Before, before they hid. Why did they hide? Why did they cover their nakedness? They were ashamed. 
They didn't think about it. A world where, shame, where there was no shame. Nobody was ashamed because nobody had to be ashamed. There's nothing to be ashamed of. And all suddenly, their experience is radically different. Put yourself, try, try to project yourself back. It's your history and mine. All of us experience shame. We know shame. But can you imagine what it would be like to live a life without shame? What a dark thing shame is. How oppressive it is. How it just takes over your entire life like a huge canopy of darkness smothering you. And so they tr tried to hide. They tried to cover themselves and then they, then they hid themselves. Wow. And then, as I think Peg mentioned, I think it was Peg that mentioned, they, they, you know, the blame thing, which goes with the shame thing. I call it the shame-blame complex. And then the rest of Scripture unpacks this. And why is it so important that we talk about this? And the reason is because we need to see our sin. It's hideous. None of us wants to look at it. None of us wants to even consider it. That is why the world in general is so caught up in the entertainment industry because it distracts us away from the realities of our inner lives because we don't want to go there. No one likes to see their sin. We sometimes enjoy seeing other people's sin, unfortunately, but we uh, don't like to see our own. And we need to see our sin. Now, in the moments that are remaining, uh, you know, you got to know I'm going over time, right? I'm on page six of seven, so we're making progress. But, but if you have to leave, I say this all the time, if you have to leave, just leave. But, but for those of you who can stay, I want to go to maybe about 10 after, and I'm going to try to do this quick, because I just want to look at a slice, okay? What a big subject. You know? say, okay, today we're going to talk about sin. If we had a, a thousand years, we couldn't finish talking about sin, because sin is, permeates everything in our lives and it grows exponentially throughout society. I mean, we'd have, to, we'd have to talk about several thousand years of human history. Every person has ever lived. The subject is massive. There's only one subject that's bigger, actually, and that's the grace of God. But I want to take a slice. Just a, remember, remember, okay, everything I say from this point on, it's a sliver. It's a slice. Think about the day in the life of a sinner. Think about a day in your life. Consider uh, the numerous interactive incidents in a normal day. You know, the Interacting that we have with others. People we live with, people we work with, people we chum around with, whatever. And, and all of that, there's all these you know, touch points. Hundreds, hundreds of touch points every day. Interactives, interactions. Call, and, and, and you can call them uh, disagreements or altercations. But I'm thinking about friction of any kind. Because... 
when we think of disagreements, we tend to think of big things. But I'm, 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 I mean, you know, pick, just pick a little thing. Could be your wife. Could be your child or a friend or a co-worker. It doesn't matter. You decide. Just, just pick one. And whatever that incident is, that, that, that uh, encounter, that point of, of, uh, of difference. Here's the thing you need to remember about it. You're wrong. Now, I know that that's a scandalous thing to say, but hear me out, okay? You're not wrong about everything. You're not even wrong about most things, but when it comes to the multiplied social interactive incidents that make up the day in our lives, as a general rule, we're wrong in some critical way. And if you're thinking about, well, what about the other person? That, they're wrong too. And you may be thinking what, we norm, what people normally think about this point when, when we you know, broach a subject like this and, and put it in those kinds of terms. You may be thinking, well, first off, what does uh, sin have to do with us being right or wrong about something? And second, when it comes to those uh, very personal and multiplied relational episodes, either small or great, that make up my life, I'm the one who has a front row seat I know or I should know what's really going on because no one knows me better than me and no one is closer to this situation than I am to know what's really going on. And I don't need a preacher standing up in the front of a church building to tell me I'm wrong. And there you have it. That's it. That's it. That's the general attitude we all share. We're hyper-opinionated, and we're emphatically so. And nowhere is this more true than when it comes to the subject of me, myself, and I. Sin affects our judgment. Remember, this is just a slice. Sin does way more than affect our judgment, but it does do that. And when it comes to anything and everything personal, I am made biased by sin. We talk about objectivity as if it were something that were actually attainable, but it doesn't really exist for us because none of us can be really objective. It's impossible. At least when it comes to ourselves and the truth be known, others too. We're biased, and we're blinded. Every one of us has blind spots. And when a person is physically blind, at least they know they're blind. The problem with what we could call spiritual blindness is that we don't know we're blind. We think we can see. So we're blind to our blindness. It's not good. We're prejudiced. We don't come into any situation with an open mind, watching to see what's what. We come into every moment with our minds made up. In at least, I would, I would estimate that when it comes to things about life, 
uh, I would say that our minds are 95% made up. And when it comes to things about ourselves, eh, we're 100% made up. And how does that, uh, how accurate are our, our, our opinions about ourselves? Well, they're all flawed. Every one of them. Every one of your opinions about yourself is flawed. Now, I, again, it's not that we're wrong about everything. But everything we have an opinion about is a flawed opinion. You don't have to be completely wrong to be wrong. Then, Do you understand? I hope we understand. Because sin affects everything, and it affects our hearts. Our perspective is not only limited, that would, be, that would be cause enough to humble us, or should be cause enough to humble us, but hey, even, even worldlings get that part, that our perspectives are limited. It's not just that. Our perspectives aren't just limited. They're flawed. They're distorted. If you really believe you're a sinner, Now, what, you say, well, what about all the really smart people? Yeah, them too. In fact, <laughs> in fact, the smarter you think you are, the more profound your blindness. Now, you might be sitting here thinking, well, opinions can be good things too, right? I have an opinion about the Bible and about God and about Jesus Christ and I should hold fast to those beliefs and champion them and not, and not question them. And that would be tr true enough. Uh, but I'm not talking about our belief in God. I'm not talking about doubting God. I'm talking about doubting ourselves. Now, I never coached uh, Josh at all when he shared this morning. I, wasn't, I never talked to him at all about what he was going to say. But he touched on these very things. You know, self-doubt gets a bad rap in our, in our world. It's like it's a self, you know, the worst thing you can do is doubt yourself. Let me tell you, the worst thing you can do is not to doubt yourself. What's the object of your faith? Where is your faith? Is your faith in yourself or is your faith in God? These are really important questions, and, and, and this is what we're talking about right now is why it is impossible to have faith as defined biblically unless it is prefaced by humility. You quoted those passages this morning, Josh. No humility, no relationship with God. You can't have biblical faith unless it is prefaced by humility. And that's also why pride is so unbecoming a thing for us as Christians. So the fallout for our relationships is atomic. And, and that's, that's why most couples don't talk. We communicate about kids, bills, whatever. But talking about what really matters and issues of the heart we don't tend to do that. Why? Why? I'm talking general, generally. I'm talking generally. It's because we can't agree. 
And it's not that we can't agree about world politics. So we can't agree with the realities of life and of our hearts because we're stubborn and we're conceited and we're greedy and we're envious and we do not see. We have blind spots and sin does that. You know? And we need to recognize it for what it is. And that's why the Bible, in the hands of the Spirit of God, confronts us. God, in his goodness, confronts us with our sin, seeking to convict us of our sin so that we can understand what it means to confess. What it means to repent and what it means to humble ourselves so that we can receive the grace of God for our sin. Because that's the promise, right? To finish up here, you know, it goes on uh, in the later verses that we read there where, where God pronounces the, the uh, you know, the... Um, solemn and profound consequences uh, of God's pronouncement uh, to the serpent and to the, the, the man and the woman. But in the, it tucked in there is this promise of a Savior, the one who would come and pay the price for our sin, the one who would come and defeat the tempter and destroy the work of the tempter by saving and restoring and reconciling us to God, by giving his own life, satisfying the justice of a good God, rescuing us. That's the promise. I hope you've read the Bible enough to know that that we can't understand forgiveness without understanding sin, and we cannot experience forgiveness without acknowledging our sin. John the Apostle says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say we have no sin, we make God to be a liar. But we don't want to acknowledge our sin. We don't want to really, to really believe in the biblical doctrine of sin, which is, only serves to condemn us all the more. So we deny, we deny, we deny, we deny, all the way to hell. Even if that's hell on earth. See, this is history. It's our history. We need to personally own it as our own. Because the gospel, the good news of the gospel, only begins for us when we see our sin. As horrible and as hideous and as revolting as it is to us to see, to really see our own sin, it's the only hope we have. Because it's only when we see our sin and acknowledge our sin for what it really is that we can then receive what God 
the provision that God has made for our sin. You say, that's really heavy. Yeah, it is really heavy. And when Jesus Christ laid down his life and shed his blood for us, he was not just pandering to our idiosyncrasies. He was dealing with the, the most profoundest realities of life that exist. We are lost, cut off from God, and condemned. And we are, every one of us, without exception, sinners. And we need to acknowledge that. And we need to see it for what it is. Because if we don't see it for what it is, nothing will change. And tomorrow will be just like today. And we'll just live in it and wallow in it with the shame and the guilt and the condemnation. And I'm not talking about using words. We use words all the time. We use the word forgiveness. We can't even begin to understand what forgiveness even means until we understand what sin is. And I'm not talking, this is not a lecture. I'm not, I'm not lecturing you about sin. Uh, that's not what, what this is at all. These, this is all intensely personal. Timothy Keller said, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared to believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared to hope. The second part is contingent on the first part. If we try to cover and hide our sin and deny our sinfulness and not recognize what it is, we cannot receive the forgiveness and the mercy and the grace of God. So it's not bad news. It's the very best news. It's the good news of the gospel. Cain, Cain didn't, didn't get it. He never owned it. Cain decided, concluded, that his problem was it Abel? And so he eliminated him. In our society today, the world doesn't believe in sin. Well, they kind of do, but they don't believe in personal sin. They believe sin is out there somewhere. It's those bad people. It's never in here. And so they do not own, they do not own this. What about you and I? Do we own this? Do we see our sin? Do we acknowledge and confess our sin so that we can be forgiven and experience God's grace for our sin? It's the good news. But it's only the good news. Who is it? Uh, might have been D.L. Moody. He said, God sends no man away empty except for the one who comes full of himself. Why don't you stand with me and we'll close in prayer. Again, I, I, I have gone over time, uh, but that's nothing new. I just, I just trust that if you come out to be a part of our Sunday morning, that most of the time you'll come expecting that there'll be some significant content and you won't go away feeling like you went for a steak dinner and ended up with a lollipop. You can sink your teeth into this because this is major biblical doctrine. This is not light and fluffy, whatever, feel-good stuff. But this is what we need to hear. We need to see our sin. We need to preach it. 
We need to hear it. We need to see it for what it is. Because only then, only then, can we praise God for his amazing grace. Will you pray with me? Lord, I pray for this great group of people. I pray for each one of us that we would personally allow the Holy Spirit of God to take the word of God and to convict us of our sin. That in those many moments of our days that we would not just find ourselves in the air of, of Cain or, or of Adam, but that we would find ourselves humbled before you and experiencing the grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, together that you would give us, be gracious unto us, Lord. Give us the gift of seeing our own need. Give us the gift of taking off the blinders off our eyes and off our hearts so we might see ourselves for what we really are in need of you, in need of your grace, in need of your forgiveness and your mercy, Lord, for your glory, for our good, for the good of our homes, for the good of our families, for the good of, uh, of this fallen uh, world, Lord, do this great work in us, we pray. And Lord, show us Jesus. Show us the cross, that we might see in the cross of Jesus not only the incredible depravity of our sin, but the great and glorious love and mercy of God. And help us, Lord, to acknowledge our sin and then to embrace the, the mercy you have for us, that our faith might not be in ourselves, but that our faith might be fully in you as our Savior and as our Lord, as our Creator and as our Savior God. We just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.